The scripture text this evening is Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. As we approach Easter and begin reflecting on Jesus and the stages of the Passion Week leading to the resurrection, I think it's appropriate that we start here in Gethsemane because we get to see Christ's own spiritual preparation for these events, which allows us to reflect upon him, who he is, what, what he's prioritizing here. So as we look at this text, I want to start, I want to look at two relationships that he has formed here, one with his disciples, how the disciples neglect him here in the garden, and then turn our attention to Jesus and how he fully submits to the will of the Father. So starting out with those disciples, you may have noticed as you heard the text that three cycles take place here. In 36, right away, he tells those disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And then through each of these cycles, he goes and prays for a significant period of time, only to return and find them sleeping. And we might have expected better of these particular disciples. 37 tells us that it's Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, so James and John. We might think of Mark 10, you know, where James and John are like vying for high kingdom honors. They want to be near Jesus. That's like the relational proximity they feel to him. You have Peter previously in verse 35 saying, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So Jesus' closest disciples, his inner circle, are the ones who neglect him here in this passage. I think first we can see their obvious physical apathy, right? Their weakness. They're falling asleep. In verse 38, Jesus communicates to them, he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So initially, before even bringing an instruction to pray, he tells them to watch. To, he's asked for support, and he combines it with this strong emotional language, right? And the disciples knew Jesus well. They would have been able to see that he's obviously in this visible, tangible agony, that he's emotional. And yet they fail, they fall asleep. He directly rebukes Peter in verse 40 saying, could you not watch with me one hour? Clearly, Jesus doesn't think 
that a solid hour of prayer is an unusually long time, right? For us, maybe that'd be more daunting. But he rebukes Peter directly in this way. And it continues in, in 42 and 43 that they, their eyes were heavy, and then we know again um, in verse 45. So they were sleepy. We know the disciples were weak. But I think we can tell from Jesus' own instruction to them in verse 40, 41 that there's more going on here that the physical apathy revealed by the disciples is actually symptomatic of like a deeper situation, of a heart issue. Let's look at 41 and consider how Jesus instructs his disciples. He says, verse 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now what's the temptation we're talking about in this passage? In the context, it kind of immediately feels like perhaps the temptation is falling asleep. Like do they pray so they don't keep falling asleep? But I think we could tell that there's more going on in the passage, right? Jesus is currently spiritually preparing for the events that are coming, right? He's, he's about to undergo all the suffering we know related to his arrest, and the disciples neglect that spiritual preparation. And how will they fare when temptation strikes, right? We know they're going to abandon him. We consider Peter, who in 35 just professed his, his undying loyalty to Jesus, and then he falls asleep three times neglecting Christ, and what will he do? He will deny Jesus three times. And we know the rest of the disciples will ban him as well. Jesus continues in 41 saying, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now we're probably familiar with this phrase using like I have good intentions, but I just couldn't do it. Like the spirit was willing, the flesh just couldn't get there. It makes me think of how Abigail and I always dream of these like perfect Saturday mornings where I like, get up super early and like get breakfast and the birds are chirping, the sun's shining, you know? And then we wake up, it's like 11 o'clock, we're still in bed, right? We had vaguely good intentions, but we couldn't follow through. But Jesus is saying much more than that, right? He's not just talking about human shortcoming. He's actually discussing the nature of being fallen, trying to be obedient in this world. Like the realities of the disciples would have claimed, they did claim, to profess and believe something specific about Jesus, that he was their Lord. And yet what happened when it came to them actually living out that belief, that claim? Their physical weakness caused them to not fully obey. Now, I think our, our focus for sure this evening is going to be Jesus, but just for a moment, like, can we relate to the disciples here? Like, in what ways do our own good intentions fall short of godly discipline, right? Because we know that it takes a changed heart, right? It takes altered affections to actually lead to godly habits. Now, is that saying too much to suggest that the disciples' sleepiness here is showing disbelief? I think if we look at our own lives, it's pretty clear how because of our own weakness and flesh, when we don't fully believe what we claim and attempt to live it out, it is in that laziness that we don't have the spiritual discipline. And, and Jesus gives us a specific response to this weakness. In knowing that we are weak, in knowing that we are frail when we face temptation, that we claim to believe God, but we have trouble obeying, that for us, we're prone to fall asleep, and an hour of prayer is daunting. What do we do? He says to pray. When confronted with our weakness, he tells us to turn to the one who is strong, who has strength. Let's turn our attention fully to Jesus, though, and consider his submission to the Father. First, I just want to point out that his humanity is on display in this passage. I think we can see that with his expression of grief. Let me reread uh, 37 and 38, and let's note the language describing his grief. At the end of 37, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. The Luke account tells us that he sweat great drops of blood. 
So why is Jesus grieving so intensely in the garden? Now, we consider his humanity. We know that he's being neglected here. He'll be betrayed soon by a disciple, be abandoned. He'll go through all the emotional and physical torment leading to the cross and then death by crucifixion, right? But in addition to this, we consider that he's bearing the sin of mankind, right? The atonement. We don't even know exactly what that experience is, but we can see here what, what Jesus seems to think about it and that it leads him to grief. And then as Tom pointed out Sunday, even more so, separation from the Father. So I think it would be a mistake for us with our robust theology and understanding of the deity of Christ to minimize Jesus' pain in this text. Christ clearly is not putting on a, an emotional performance for the disciples, right? They're seeing real, visible pain. We're seeing here what Jesus thinks about the cross. What, what does Jesus consider about the cost he will pay for the salvation of our souls? It leads him to tears, to grief. I think we also see his humanity in his his request for deliverance in verse, his request for deliverance in his first prayer, 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He describes the sufferings that he doesn't want to experience like a cup. He doesn't want to drink it. Right? He doesn't want to undergo this. Now, we know that Jesus is God, right? So we know that he knows what's coming and he knows why it's coming, why it should happen. And yet, he's not unwilling to express his reluctance, his immediate physical desire is not to go through this separation from the Father. And yet, despite that, what does he ultimately do? He submits. We see his submission through each of the prayers. Because he ends verse 39 saying, not as I will, but as you will. So while I don't want to experience the separation from the Father and all the torment I know will be associated with it, what's my highest priority? God's will. He's saying what he believes about God is that God's plan, while it may include all this immense suffering, must be good because of who God is, that he's wise, that he's good. In 42, he again expresses a submission, but without any request for deliverance. He says, my Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 44, he prays for a third time, saying the same words again. So we know, that, we know that he repeats this expression of submission, right, all three times. And even the text ends with Jesus moving towards his betrayer. So Jesus fully submits to the will of the Father in this text. In what ways can we reflect on that? How can we, we gain and, and benefit from meditating upon that? I have four observations, implications for us to consider relating to his submission. And the first is that Jesus submitting to the will of the Father is an act of worship. He's glorifying God. I think this is clear because by Jesus choosing to submit, in contrast to the disciples who could not live consistently with their claims about God, Jesus is living consistently with what he had taught about God. Like, if Jesus believed and had taught that God was sovereign and that his plan was best, despite the suffering it included, then that would lead him to faith. And so by expressing that faith and dependence, what is he saying about God? He glorifies him. He's putting him on the throne, saying that he is king, that he is sovereign. The idea that belief and trust in an authority honors that authority, I think is somewhat clear in a parenting relationship. I know for me, when I think about certain phases of my life with my father, where if he had given me advice and I just blew him off, I'm not just losing the insights he gave me. I'm actually saying something about what I believe about my dad, right? That he wasn't that 
wise, maybe. Maybe he's not authoritative about the topic I asked him about. So I'm actually saying something about him by not listening to him. But if I do listen to him, not only do I gain the insights, I'm actually honoring him. I was saying, yeah, my dad's authoritative. He's wise. He knows what he's doing in this situation. And of course, at a much different level, Jesus' submission and dependence lifts up God. It glorifies him. Similarly, a second observation would be that submission to God from Jesus is an act of faith, right? He's expressing trust in what God has ordained, the events that he's orchestrated. And very similarly to the disciples, to us who, who profess to love God and yet have trouble living out obedience to those claims, when we face suffering, how difficult it is for us to accept that, that this is not our will, but your will, if it includes that suffering, can we move forward? Can we have joy and obey you if your plan includes this suffering? Jesus, coming face to face with that suffering, submits to it. Not as I will, but as you will. Maybe a third observation would be that we see the humility of Christ. And I think in a couple ways. One would be his movement to prayer. You may have noticed in 39, a posture of prayer he says he fell on his face and prayed, so he's humbling himself. This is also kind of inherent in this whole idea that he would say, not as I will, but as you will. Like to glorify God and lift him up as an authority, as sovereign, then he's humbling himself below that authority. I think we also see it at the end of the passage, in verse 45, then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See the hours at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Consider that, those titles. The Son of Man and all of the glory associated with that title. Betrayed into the hands of sinners. There's an absurdity to that, right? It doesn't make sense, but that's the plan, and it involves this humiliation. And what does Jesus do in response to that? He says, rise, let us be going. My betrayer's at hand. He moves obediently towards the humiliations of the cross. Jesus leaves the garden spiritually prepared for the humiliations of the cross. Why? Because he trusts that that is God's plan. He's already submitted to it, that it must be good. Perhaps a fourth observation that we can get from his submission is that through it we see the beauty of God's plan in saving us. Like let's uh, parallel this text with the other famous garden in Scripture. Consider Eden. So Adam is in this perfect environment. And Adam and Eve really have one requirement, right? Is to submit to God. Is to do what he says. Right? He's given them instruction. Bow the knee to God. Obey him. But they're overcome with their pride, right? And they fail in this regard. And after the fall, all men, all people would fail to submit to God. Every one of us are unable on our own to bow the knee and to choose to let go of our immediate desires and place them humbly underneath the authority of God. We all subvert that authority. But then take Jesus. So he's not in the perfect garden like Adam. He's in a garden facing all of this suffering. And yet, and also, unlike the frail human, Jesus is sinless and worthy. And how does he respond he submits to the will of the Father. See, this is how God has worked in rescuing us. Jesus didn't just take our place in the sense that he was perfect and sinless, which we couldn't do. He took our place on the cross, but he also was able, uniquely able to submit to God's authority in the way that we cannot with our pride and with our sinfulness. 
Jesus took our place in that only he could fully submit to the Father. Only he could truly trust and have the faith that we're unable to have. And God received glory through that. And what an act of God's grace it is that we, who like these disciples, like Peter, so quickly falling asleep and and abandoning our Lord after professing faith, that we were given Christ to take our place and to submit when we could not, to bear what we could not. It's joyful. And how will we be moved by this? Do we consider, will we follow Christ's model of humility? Will we be moved as well to consider what we say about God if we believe that God is good and sovereign? Will we be moved? Are our, are our experiences with God affecting our hearts in such a way that it leads to obedience? And if not, when we consider that that's not been the case in our own personal worship, and of course, that's true for all of us, that it's not, right? Not the way we consistently desire it to be. Will that lead us to be strengthened in our faith? Do our experiences with God show that he's proven himself worthy and faithful? And does that move us to love him better? Because while we cannot perfectly submit like Christ, because Christ submitted in our place, that perfection is no longer required for us, right? That's the beauty of the gospel. And now we can move to better submit, to, to let go, to loosen our grip on this world now, to get past our immediate physical desires and submit them to the will of the Father. Let me close in prayer.